This is the City Surgery on City Talk 105.9. And it's City Talk 105.9. A very good afternoon to you. My name is Mick Coyle. Welcome to the Legal Surgery. It's that time of the week where we sit down with our resident solicitor and he guides us through the latest from the world of law and hopefully answers your questions when it comes to legal problems that you might be having in your life at the moment. So they might be to do with family matters, you might have parking tickets, speeding fines, that sort of thing. Mark Ellis is here to solve those issues here on the show, or if you can't solve them, to point you at least in the right direction. Good afternoon, Mark Ellis. Good afternoon, Mick Coyle. Now, Mark, I've got a guest on The Breakfast Show next week that you're going to be very excited about. Oh, go on. You know, you like your cycling, don't you? I do. Who's the Wirral's most famous cycling oh. son? Oh, you're not talking Chris Boardman. Chris Boardman is on The Breakfast Show next Tuesday morning. Dearie me. You're going to be very excited about that. Well, I, why didn't you invite me on the show with him? <laughs> well, this is true. I don't know if he le- needs any legal advice. If he does. I mean, I once trained in a gym just uh, sort of just a short distance away from him. I gaze affectionately in his general direction. He's one of the uh, the great Merseyside sporting heroes, and it kind of goes. His achievements kind of go a little bit un, un, unsung. Gold medal in Barcelona Olympics, nineteen ninety two. Absolutely, three time stage winner of the Tour de France. Indeed, as well. indeed, yeah. plenty more things as well. Um, Tuesday morning. Around about 8.15. Sending my very best wishes. Will do. Uh, Mark Ellis is with us. He's from James Murray Solicitors. He is our resident solicitor here on City Talk 105.9. He likes his cycling, uh, but also he likes to uh, dish out advice on the show for people who've emailed the show and tweeted the show with their questions. Uh, Lots to get through today and a whole variety of questions. Uh, For people who've never heard the show before, basically Mark is here just to answer any legal matters that you might have in your life that you've got going on and you think, I could do with getting a solicitor's advice on that one. Uh, Questions like this from E.L., who's emailed in to say, Dear Legal Surgery, if I did someone else's final year dissertation for them and the university know I did it for their student, what action can the university take against me? Well, they may well. I mean, if you are a student as well, they could kick you out of the university. You couldn't use effectively plagiarism. You're using somebody else's work. You're, you're passing something off uh, as being somebody else's, and and, uh, and therefore they may well take action, internal action against you if they know it is you. You could be dragged before the, uh, I don't know, the board at the university and, and action taken. Exactly what, I don't know, but I would have thought uh, that you could well be penalised if that is what you've done. It's fundamentally wrong to start drafting other people's dissertations and submitting it um, on their behalf, pretending it is there. So you may well find if they have evidence of doing that. I think I know of one other case previously that that, that occurred and, and the person in question was kicked out of the university and uh, lost any chance of obtaining a degree so it's pretty serious stuff especially if you've been studying for years only to lose your degree and your opportunity to seek your finals because you've been doing this sort of thing it's wrong i wonder whether or not if you're doing a course which has sort of official national accreditation mm. so medical studies and and things like that there's, there's an element of fraud or something like there that. Is there is an element of fraud in it mick as well yeah potentially you, you um could be obtaining a pecuniary advantage by deception. You could all sorts of things you could be doing. But yeah, absolutely, you you could well find yourself um, in a police station having to answer questions in a police station, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that starts with if I did somebody else's final year dissertation, and the university know that I did it for their student. There's a big if. There's a huge if. If is a massive word, isn't it? If you're considering doing it, your advice would be... Don't don't do do it. it. Don't do it. EL, thank you for your question. Now, this one came in. I wonder if you can help this one out. It's uh, it's anonymous, and I've removed the name of the uh, the banking question, uh, which was mentioned a couple of times on the email. Dear City Talk, I was having a cash card account in the bank, this bank. I go to the branch about four to five months ago to convert my account from a cash card to a current account plus, but they refused... 
that you can uh, they you can apply for a current account plus after six months. Now, when the time came to apply for the current account, they just closed my account, saying that you don't meet with our criteria. I was not using the cash card account because I needed a current account to use. They insulted me by closing my account without any reason. Can I sue the bank? What loss have you had? That's the question. Why Why do you want to sue the bank? I think you say, well, um, you've been insulted. Well, are you going to sue them for being insulted? You've obviously not met, met their terms and conditions, have you? So therefore they've decided to close the account. Why don't you, rather than thinking about closure of the account and suing and things like that, why don't you simply contact the bank and say, could I have a meeting, please? I just want to clarify some things and go and speak to them and tell them that you want to be an earnest customer of theirs, you want to bank with them, etc. You're disappointed and see what they say. But in this day and age, I guess banks really can pick and choose who they go with. And if you don't meet the tight criteria for that account, then they're not going to, to do business with you. You can't force them to do business with you. But unless you've had you've suffered some significant loss as a consequence of them closing down the account, then suing isn't really an option. I, I would simply contact them and ask if you can meet with, with maybe perhaps one of their staff members for a chat and take it from there. Often in these cases, it's to do with the amount of money you're prepared to put in each month, or but that's a, a separate agreement per different account. And You're absolutely right, and that would be the terms and conditions of that contract, and perhaps the, you know, the, the, the caller isn't, or the listener isn't actually putting in that set amount and therefore not complying with the terms and conditions and therefore they've closed the account. What they need to do really is to open up something else, Mick. They need to open up the lines of communication. And people can communicate with this show by sending in their emails to surgery at citytalk.fm. That email address is surgery at citytalk.fm. You keep setting those ones up, Mark. We are slick. I'm liking this. Mark Ellis is with us. He's our resident solicitor, and he answers your legal question. Uh, Now, this one comes through. Uh, there's something of the the trigger about the the end of this email because it says thanks Dave. Um, I think that's from Dave. The email comes through from trigger Dave. Trigger on horses. It says hello. I received a parking charge in a private car park before Christmas. Long story short, I like that. Mm. I appealed to Poplar P O P L A, and they allowed the appeal, and the charge was cancelled. But while I was waiting for the appeal, I also contacted the local planning office to see if they had planning permission for the cameras and signs, which they didn't. Can the private parking company still issue charges when they have no planning permission? My friend has just received a charge in the same car park. Thanks, Dave. I think it was thank- thanks, comma, from Dave, Apostrophe. who's emailed the show. Exclamation mark. <laughs> Uh, well, I have no idea is the answer. I mean, what you need to do, Dave, I think, really, is, is to do some me- more research and perhaps come back to us in a couple of weeks' time and let us know what the outcome was. But no, I think, all joking aside, um, do they need planning permission in order to in order to have a camera there? Well, look, if you've got something on your land and you own that land, then you can do whatever you want with it, provided you're complying with the law. Uh, I don't think it's going to prevent people from uh, from issuing tickets for you know speeding or what have you if they haven't got planning permission. It's an interesting point. It's it's a moot point. I suspect it wouldn't have affected the, um, the, the the ticket being applied. You've obviously appealed on a different ground, and, and you've obviously explained um, to the uh, to the appeal exactly the reason behind your parking there or not parking there, whatever it is, and you've been successful. You know, well done on that. Um, I think perhaps your research has gone just a step too far. You can look into these things a little in too much depth. But why not try it? You've, you, you, if your friend's had a ticket, then why not chuck it, chuck it in and see what comes of it? And if it is successful, let us know. Um, because at the end of the day, we're not talking about a court. We're not talking about fundamental points of law. We're talking about you going uh, before an appeal 
and uh, what they tend to do is to, is to bring in somebody, if it's a local authority, uh, they'll bring in an adjudicator to sit and listen to the appeal, and that adjudicator will make a determination. They're completely independent, which normally the local authority pay for. And and if your friend decides, well, that's the phrase I'm going to use, and that's a, a line of argument I'm going to adopt, uh, he or she can actually either go and, and speak uh, to that individual and put that forward, <laughs> or indeed simply make written representations. See where you get. I suspect you're going to get very little uh, progress on that line, but you never know. Uh, when he says he appealed to Poplar, P-O-P-L-A, mm. what's that? Is that is... Well, Dave's going to let us know what Poplar is, I think, in the next email he says, is he not? Ah, right. Uh, I'm sure we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, Dave, thank you for your email. Hope that answers your question. If you want to get back in touch with us, of course, the regular email address is surgery at citytalk.fm. That's surgery at citytalk.fm. M. Right, we'll try and get through as many questions as we can on the show, so let's crack straight on. Uh, this comes through from Chris from the Wirral. Dear City Talk, is it legal for a holiday apartment owner to show prospective buyers around the apartment while it is being rented and while the tenants are out? Chris in the Wirral. Well, I guess what you would have done is when you, and I'm presuming, Chris, you're the person that went to the apartment and, and holidayed there. The first thing to look at is, you know, what was the agreement? What were the terms of the agreement? Is there some sort of uh, tenancy agreement, a brief agreement that, that you're allowed to stay there for a period of time? Or indeed, is it simply an unwritten agreement? Look, if you've gone there and friends have said, look, use our villa and you can and you can have it. Well, there, there are no real terms and conditions other than, you know, some sort of an oral agreement that you can go there. Uh, in which case, yep, they can potentially invite people around to have a have a, a, a goosey gander whilst you're out and about enjoying your holiday. Um, if there is an actual written agreement, see what it is. And if you have the exclusive use of that apartment and people are uh, being shown around, then you could arguably say, well, hang on a minute, we're not having the exclusive use of the apartment and therefore you're in breach of contract. But I think the, the very definition of your relationship with the owner really must be, must be scrutinised and considered. It, you know, is it a formal contractual situation or is it more informal, perhaps almost bordering on friendly, where someone simply allowed you to, 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 to use the, the, the villa for a period of time and then it becomes very much a grey area. Certainly if you are a tenant and you have a landlord, the landlord must give you prior notice before coming in to inspect the premises, etc. So using that sort of policy and principle, yes, you'd have hoped that they would at least give you notice that's what was going to happen. But you know there might be all sorts of whys and wherefores as to why they have done this, and the starting point has got to be, is there a contract? If so, what's it about the landlord having access to the property whilst you're there? Chris from the world, thank you for your email, surgery at citytalk.fm. If you want to send in your questions and get them answered on next week's show by our resident solicitor, Mark Ellis, you can send them in at any point during the week and uh, we'll pick them up for next Thursday afternoon. Uh, now, I've cut, the, I've cut the name off this email and I'm trying to remember whether that was because the person asked me to. I think we'll get into it and it simply says at the end, please help. It says, Dear City Talk, I was made, I was made dismissed. I was dismissed, I think it means, Mm -hmm. earlier this month. It wasn't really that fair, but I have no grounds to stand on due to the length of employment was just under three months. What is more angry, or what is making you more angry, is that they had withheld my last month's wage, not letting me know before payday, only to find out on the payday itself. Uh, He was an e-commerce coordinator. They wrote to me in the end to say the reason they are withholding my salary is because they are investigating a series of incidents which may involve me accessing their website and making changes to their business, which has resulted in them suffering substantial financial loss. Now, my feeling is that something has gone wrong and they are left with a gut feeling it was something to do with me. Please help. Mm. Okay, well, um, I think the starting point for that has got to be 
you want your money, don't you? That's got to be the uh, the starting point. So what do you do about that? Well, ask for it is the first thing. It may seem a ridiculous proposition when you're, you're clearly desperate for it, but I would have hoped that you would have formally put in writing at some point in time your desire to have that money and for them to explain why you've not had it. Don't be accepting simple explanations over the telephone or a little, little chat with somebody uh, over a coffee. Get it in writing as to why they're not prepared to pay you. So the starting point is get a letter out. And I know I've said this in the past and I get criticised by friends and colleagues for always saying it, but it is relevant. Send a letter to them and either you know hand deliver it and get them to sign for a receipt for it or indeed send the letter and keep a copy of it and send it via registered post because you'll be able to prove potentially to a court that they have received that letter so make sure you've got proof that you've you've served this letter and in it simply say i worked from uh, for you for whatever period of time as an e-commerce director my employment ended on and cite the day um, i am owed a month's wage and, and again, specify the um, the period of time you have not provided me that payment. I request that payment be made in full within seven working days or else I shall take the matter further and consider litigation. Something like that. And then send that out and wait for their response. If you get a response, then keep those responses because, of course, it's something that you can potentially rely upon. But if you decide that you're going to pursue these people for the money, and it might be they've got, you know, they may have money issues. They've obviously let you go. They're saying that there's some sort of issues and incidents that they're looking into. It sounds particularly fishy to me. They might not have the money to pay you. So think about, look, I'm going to go and get a county court order, or at least apply for one, to at least be you know, a creditor, and, and therefore I can pursue them for the money that, with a county court judgment, you can pursue them for the money that, 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 uh, that they owe you. So start the ball rolling with a letter, see what comes of it, and if you don't get any response, consider simply issuing proceedings in the county court. It's really straightforward. The county court staff at any county court are always very helpful with the forms you've got to complete. It's simply a summons that you sign and you complete details of, of what is owed to you. You submit that, and the district judge will deal with it. And if you're successful and you have your judgment, then you can enforce that judgment in a number of ways. They might oppose it, and they might say, well, he's not been paid for these reasons, but at least it brings matters to a head, and it might make these people think, crumbs, he, mean, he or she means business, therefore we best pay them. You're always very nice about people in the county courts. Does that suit you as a solicitor to keep them on side? Well, when to I was, give them a mention on the radio occasionally? Yeah. I think when I was starting out in life and in my career, my dad always said to me, look, you've just got to be nice to these court staff. Really nice to them always because they're always there to help and they will help you and get you out of messes. And uh, my dad was absolutely bang on. So um, so I've always stayed with that, really. I've been qualified 15 years and never had a bad word with any of them. So, <laughs> Good. So there you go. It would be nice on the way up. Because you might need them on the way yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. And you're on the way up still, but we never know when things might take a turn for the worse. Well, if they do, I'm going to come <laughs> and clean your floors, Mick. And I'd be proud to do it. Absolutely. Um, one more question on the show this week. And this one came through on Twitter. Um, a handle which doesn't quite make sense. I'm going to guess it's somebody called Leo. Uh, it says, dear, dear City Talker, one of my witnesses has passed away. Is my will still valid? Yes. Yes. Okay. I can say it a thousand times, but yes, yes, yes. Um, witnesses on wills? Yeah, people... you've got to have two witnesses on the will, um, and their details are on it in order for them to be traced. What are witnesses? What what do they do? They're simply, uh, they are witnesses to the fact that you, you, know, you haven't lost your marbles and you know what you're doing. It's as simple as that. They are in no way, shape or form involved in the making of the will. They are not beneficiaries. They shouldn't be beneficiaries. If they are beneficiaries, then the will would fail. Uh, but if they are, what you tend to find if, if a solicitor has, has um, um, 
uh, drafted the will for you, they tend to, to ask a couple of admin staff or, or, or you know the solicitor next door to come in and, and witness the will. And they simply put their name and, and details down. Th- these things do happen. The witnesses do pass away, and they do what we call predecease the the testator. That's a bit of legalese for you, mm. uh, the person who's made the will. Don't worry, it doesn't invalidate your will whatsoever. The only way it would invalidate it would be if, for instance, you only had one witness. You, okay. need, you need you need two, um, so uh, but but don't worry. If at the time that you executed the will, if there were two people and they've signed it and they've put the details down, you're fine. Don't worry. Leo, thank you for that one. Just so as a general rule, if somebody mm. asks you to be a witness on their will, basically mm. you're not getting anything. Correct, and that's why if a solicitor is, is drafting the will, they'll say we need a couple of witnesses, and they'll call up you know the the the, the post the post lad, or they'll call up the solicitor next door who deals with something else, and they'll both come in, and they'll they'll watch you sign your will, and then they'll sign it and they'll put their details underneath. I've done it a thousand times. Uh, Mark Ellis, we're out of time. Thank you for your time. This Thank week. you, Mick. My Don't pleasure. Don't forget who's on the breakfast show Tuesday morning, eight fifteen. Your hero, me and Chris Boardman. We can't <laughs> wait. Unfortunately, uh, there's there's only one. Just me. Okay, never there's mind. Chris one, will be disappointed. But there we go. Chair in the studio on that day. <laughs> okay. uh, Mark, thanks for your time. Take care. Uh, Mark Ellis with us each and every Thursday as part of Drive Time. He's from James Murray Solicitors, but he's our resident solicitor too here on City Talk 105.9. If you were maybe listening to the show, particularly when he's drafting you a letter, as he did this week live on air, you go back on the website, see a rather uh, nifty little photo of Mark looking out across the River Mersey. It's a great picture. You took it. And then it's on the uh, the website. You can listen again to previous legal surgery shows if you've got a situation which sounds like something similar that we've been talking about on the show. Send your questions for next week's show. The uh, email address never changes. Surgery at citytalk.fm. This is the City Surgery on City Talk 105.9.